Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Brand sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Brand sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Blacks, a rich, smooth, and truly delicious chocolate experience. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. In today's episode, Roisin Ingle will be speaking with American crime writer Karen Slaughter. Karen has just released her 20th book, The Silent Wife, which is an incredible career milestone for any author. This is part of our Will Trent series of books and it follows the story of a young woman who was brutally attacked and left for dead and the investigation that follows. As one reviewer put it, if you're into mystery thrillers, then you're into Karen Slaughter. And I'll freely admit to being one of those. A good mystery thriller is my go-to distraction in hard times, providing the detail is not too lurid. Karen talks about growing up in Georgia and how her family influenced her writing, especially her granny, who loved True Crime magazine. She also reveals how lockdown life isn't too different from a writer's normal life. And she tells us a little about her two and a half cats. I'm hoping that means one of the two cats is pregnant, Roisin. Karen, thank you very much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. How has lockdown been for you? Well, I mean, it's been very eye-opening because I didn't know that my lifestyle had a word uh, to describe (laughs) it, and it's quarantine. Uh, So I've been, you know, I've been adapting really well to this. And I've actually had friends call me and they're like, you're the biggest introvert we know. How do you do this? And uh, it's uh, it's been fun because usually, you know, I'm the one who's like, oh, I can't go to the party. I can't do this. I can't do that. And now I can just say, oh, it, you know, it's it's too dangerous. I don't think we should do that. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Like, And I think that's going to last for a long time. Like you'll be able to milk that for a while. You know, people will understand if you're kind of still being cautious in six months, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, also I had a ton of masks just for no reason. <laughs> And are you immunocompromised anyway, just on a more serious note? Yes, I am. I am. I have a really high inflammation and heart disease. And I mean, except for my age, I'm like hitting all the sweet spots of um, COVID. So I have legitimate reasons to stay home. I used to, when when I started traveling, I would get sick every single time I was on an airplane and um, I went to my doctor. I'm like, you know, you got to fix this. And she's like, well, the problem is you're just really out of shape and not healthy Hmm. (laughs) and that there's not a pill for that. It's something you actually have to do. And I was like, ah, no, there has to be a pill. (laughs) So uh, I, I, you know, I've changed my entire lifestyle. I stopped eating cookies um and carb loading for a marathon that I was never gonna run and <laughs> you know it's got on the treadmill and all that and lost I lost about 20 pounds so uh and damned she wasn't right because I don't get sick as much now it's crazy and was exercise part of that as well 
Yeah. You know, and I actually really enjoy being on the treadmill. It, I kind of remind myself of my grandmother because she's like, uh, I'm going to go watch my shows, except she sat on the couch and watched soap operas. But I, I always say I'm going to go watch my shows and I get on my treadmill and I watch uh, Vampire Diaries or Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, you know, anything in the vampire wheelhouse. I'm, I'm totally there. But your sister did get Corona. She did. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, she's she's a bit of a hypochondriac. And so at first I was like, yeah, right. You got it. You know, come on. And then she got she went to the hospital and the doctor said you had COVID. And I still I was like, you're just being a baby. And then the test came back. I was like, oh, crap. You know, uh, I'm still not going to go see you, but I'm really sorry. (laughs) And how is she now? She's good. She's good. You know, it really knocked her on her butt, though. It took mm. her about um, oh, a month and a half to get back to her baseline. But some people are still finding symptoms months later, you know. it's It seems to really stay with people sometimes. Well, yeah. And, you know, even young people, uh, their their lungs are being damaged and they're young, so it doesn't affect them now. But when they're older, it's really going to be an issue. Uh, and also, you know, there's a, a neurological component where it might, if you're, you get it when you're young, bring on dementia earlier or Alzheimer's. I mean, it's, this is just a nasty, nasty thing. Mm. And now are things starting to open up again then that you, you kind of went a bit early in terms of America, in terms of opening up again, where you are in yeah. Atlanta? Yeah. Totally. Stupidly. And, you know, it's really funny because Atlanta is extremely democratic, but our our um, our governor is well, you know, he cheated. He like he was in charge of the elections, but also running for governor and he won. Um, And so, uh, you know, Atlanta has been very cautious and we have the CDC headquartered here. You know, the actual people at the CDC, not the political appointees who are just that, idiots. That's the Center for Disease Control, just for anyone who yeah. doesn't know. So, you know, everybody here has been extremely cautious. And, you know, tragically, the first group that was hit was uh, from a funeral. Uh, and it was an African-American funeral in the southern part of Georgia. And these funerals are such big events. They last for two or three days and family comes from everywhere. And so this poor family, not only did they deal with this loss, they had a a devastating impact on visitors who came and then went back to their respective states. And I mean, the whole community was wiped out. And the mayor of that town, when our governor opened up the state, was saying, you don't know how bad this is. Please don't do this. And you know, here we are. It's shocking. And, you know, speaking of the Center for Disease Control, in, in your last book, The Last Widow, you actually had um, an infectious disease researcher. So you went there to do a bit of research. Yeah, it was so cool. You know, it was just like in the movies where I pulled up and like they got the mirror on the stick and looked under my car for explosives. And then this uh, German shepherd got in my car and found a bunch of um, crumbs uh, from cookies. But uh <laughs> <laughs> That's a different story. Uh, they asked me if I had any weapons, and I mean, it was really full on because they keep some of the most dangerous biological um, things there. So it was really kind of alarming, but uh, because I live close to the CDC, uh, but it was also kind of cool just from a writer standpoint. One thing I saw that I, I've, I've never seen, I've seen pictures of, but they have a museum there. 
and they had an actual iron lung that children who had polio used. Wow. Always thought they were really big, but they're small because, you know, children are predominantly in there. And I just read that there's a man in uh, the uh, Britain who has been in an iron lung most of his life and he's still alive. So it was really just a crazy thing. That's incredible. Uh, and listen, before we talk about the amazing achievement of your 20th novel, which is just incredible, what are you feeling about your home country at the moment? Because clearly in the last few weeks, months, um, there's been a lot going on in terms of George Floyd, in terms of the protests and the continuing Trumpness of it all. Um, what's your take on all of that? Well, I think it's all of a piece. And I think that when we look back at this history that we're living through, the fact of Trump being president is the reason why we're seeing this. You know, I think if Hillary Clinton, God bless her, had become president, that we wouldn't have had Me Too. We wouldn't have had the widespread acceptance and support of Black Lives Matter. We wouldn't have all we wouldn't be looking at ourselves the way we're looking at ourselves now. And part of that is because Trump just embodies that generation of white man who, you know, cheats to get and maintain power. And people are sick of it. And, you know, the, the biggest thing is this we're, we're a very different country now uh, than even in my lifetime. You know, when I was a, a child, I lived in a small southern town and there was a black section and a white section. And you could clearly see the difference because of the poverty. Even the poor whites did not live as, as hand to mouth as the poor blacks did. And that was in my lifetime. That was after the civil rights movement. That was after all the laws were passed to, to force equality and get rid of uh, what we call Jim Crow, which basically codified racism and restricting black people. And so you, I, I think that my generation is in a very interesting spot because we know how the older generation thinks, but we also know how the younger generation thinks. And they're just looking around saying, why are we putting up with this crap? You know, why? Okay. Sexual harassment. No, don't just suck it up. Why is this man's ego more important than my comfort? Why is this person's um, right to use racial slurs more important than my right not to hear them. And, you know, honestly, I would love for them to take down the monuments to white supremacists that we have at the Georgia Capitol. I mean, it's just embarrassing, especially because the Capitol is Atlanta and we're a 65% African-American uh, population here. It's a majority minority population when you add in uh, Mexican-Americans and we have a lot of Asian-Americans here. So, it's like, who are you representing? Uh, and I think that that examination has come through the lens of Trump because he's a boogeyman we can look at and say, this is what this guy thinks. And he's emblematic of a certain type of white man who really wants to hold on to that white power. I mean, and you, you can't blame him because it's fantastic. I mean, look <laughs> at his life. If he if he had been a black man, there is no he probably wouldn't be alive right now. Just like the medical care alone that's keeping this guy alive is incredible. So, you know, that that kind of thing, I think, is really of a piece. Mm. Karen, I think it's so interesting. You've really blown my mind a bit because 
you know, I, I, I can openly say, because I've talked about it on this podcast, how, you know, devastated I was um, with the last election and the next day when waking up to find out that Trump had won and how terrible it was that Hillary didn't win. Hillary, who wasn't perfect, don't get me wrong, but still the idea of a woman president was brilliant. But what you're basically saying there is, in a way, it's better that he got there because we have things will ultimately be progress more. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's accelerated it. You know, we had Obama and, and a lot of Americans on the left and independents and liberals, everyone except the 25% of Americans who register as Democrat, I mean, as Republicans, was saying, oh my gosh, you know, we have a black president. We're so forward thinking. We're nominating a woman who's likely going to win. And we just had the rug pulled out from under us. And yeah. I think it's a wake up call to stop being complacent and to really pay attention. You know, there's this concept of what we think the world is. And then there's the actual world. And we've got to be more involved and do things, you know, about climate change, about sexism, racism, all these things. And it, it's kind of like a resurgence of the 60s, uh, you know, where people were uh, stopped the Vietnam War and they marched and tried to change things. But I think this is different because it actually feels like we might change things. Well, I hope I hope you're right. I mean, because the, the danger is that it's just another moment. But I think I think you're right. The number of white people involved in it in America seems to be much bigger than ever before, and that has to make a difference. Yeah, you know, it's not. If you think back, like 1991 with Rodney King who was just brutally beaten by these white officers who were then acquitted. I think that was the first moment for a lot of white people where they thought, huh, that's not right. But then we told ourselves, this is, this is an outlier, right? Mm -hmm. This, this is one time, but now with cell phone video, we know it's not just one time. And I write about police officers. I love police officers and I hate the bad apple analogy Because the fact is that there are so many issues within policing, like every government organization here. I mean, just over the years, everything has been broken. And we saw that with COVID, you know, where America was the world leader in infectious disease investigation. And it took Trump three and a half years to destroy that. But prior to that, we just weren't funding it. We were giving uh, tax cuts to extremely wealthy people and making sure corporations didn't have to pay tax. Um, And thanks, Ireland, for your help with that. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) But, uh, you know, we've stopped taking care of people and started taking care of corporations, and hopefully that's going to be a big change. You are listening to The Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Well, listen, let's talk about um, your books and particularly, as I said, your 20th novel. Uh, Can you believe it? Does it feel amazing to have got to that point? It does. And it feels like the disease that we're dealing with has been really useful in explaining things because this has been the longest February that I've ever experienced. Uh, So, you know, whenever I look at the calendar and think, oh, my God, it's almost July where I don't know where those other months went. Uh, and that's how I feel about the 20th book. It's like, it just feels like maybe five years ago I started writing. 
And of course, you know, I'm, I look incredibly young. Well, you don't have your video on Karen, so <laughs> just believe me. I'm honestly <laughs> telling you the truth. <laughs> and listen, talking about that, I mean, if you think when you started, I mean, you we've talked before about your kind of upbringing and how storytelling was a huge part of it because your dad was uh, a very interesting um, person in terms of the stories he would tell you that were often quite violent and gory. And also your granny was a big influence on you in terms of the way she would speak about other people. Tell tell us a bit about that. Well, you know, my grandmother was a typical Southern grandmother and her favorite social outlet was church. And she would always want to take us to church with her, me and my uh, two older sisters. And her church was one step away from snake handling, literally, because the, the previous preacher died. He was bitten by a rattlesnake. And my grandmother <laughs> said, you know, well, poor preacher, he just didn't believe enough. I was like, no, a snake bit him. That's why he died. Uh, And so we were allowed to go with her at Easter. And so every Easter we would get in our patent leather shoes and our little pink dresses and the underwear with the ruffles, which was kind of strange. My sister was 16. Um, And she got a lot of phone numbers from people, but that's a different story. Oh, God. uh, You know, my grandmother would take us around at the end of church because that was the whole point was to like show us off. And so we had to have impeccable manners or we would get the tar slapped out of us when we got home. And so she would introduce us to her friends and say, this is Mrs. Smith. This is Mrs. Jones. And we would have to say, good morning, Mrs. Smith, you know, and just be really polite. But as soon as the woman turned around, my grandmother would say something really awful like, well, you know, she drinks too much or, you know, that her husband's a cheat or, you know, her son is weird. And so I just got this feeling that these people who were, you know, in their Sunday best, that everybody had a dark secret. And I I think that's part of my writing that I really enjoy is talking about everybody's dark secrets. Um, but, but my dad is not that way. You know, he's not a gossip. He doesn't really like to talk about people, but he was always telling us stories with some sort of cautionary tale, like the little girl who touched the refrigerator door and died (laughs) or the little girl who touched the thermostat and died. Uh, so there was always a theme, uh, that would result in not wasting money with my dad. Well, listen, the other thing that um, you write about a lot is violence. Um, And again, we've spoken about this before, but you put a little note at the beginning of The Silent Wife. This is your latest book about the violence against women in your books and why you write it. Have you written a note like that before or did you feel like you should because you kept getting asked questions about it? Well, you know, I knew I'd still get asked questions about it, probably more so. Um, But I did want to write about that because it was just sort of the letter was meant to be a reflection on the previous 20 years. And it was very important to me from the beginning to be open about what happens when a woman is attacked or victimized, because there's a softening of the language around it. You know, even today, if a woman is murdered, and she's also been raped, that's something they leave out of the story. And it's sort of this censoring that I don't think is right because, you know, we, we need to understand the threat of violence, the violence that women live with every day, whether it's domestic violence or sexual harassment or microaggression or any of that. And, you know, one of the reasons is my grandmother, because, uh, you know, we loved her to death, but my grandfather was an incredibly abusive person and he beat my grandmother. 
And when I was a little girl, when we would see her bruised or with a, a black eye or a split lip, she would say that she had tripped. And so we had the joke that grandma was just very uh, clumsy. And then later I realized nobody's that clumsy. And we didn't talk about it. My sisters had the same revelation and we never spoke about the fact that my grandmother was being abused by my grandfather. And I can tell you to this day, it did not stop him. Being silent only helped him. It did not help her. And I chose when I wrote that first novel to write about violence and what was happening in a realistic way. You know, sometimes violence is used for effect or for titillation or at a very base level, even entertainment. And I thought about my grandmother reading those true crime magazines. And, you know, most of the stories made it seem like it was the woman's fault. You know, at the end, it would say she should have listened to her husband or her father was right. You know, they were all about controlling women, especially women's sexuality. You know, women who went out and had fun had to be punished for it. And so I wanted to write stories realistically so that the women who are reading it might say, that's me. And that's wrong that it happens to this character. So maybe it's wrong that it happens to me. As you're speaking about it there and about your grandmother, I'm thinking of the fact that domestic violence has increased in COVID times. You know, I don't, I think it's the same in America. I think it's all over the world. It's, uh, it's just what, you know, the time when you have to say at home and home is not a safe place for many women, which is, is just awful. Um, tell us a bit about The Silent Wife um, and what people can expect. Well, you, primarily, I hope that they think, wow, this is just a really good, shocking, entertaining read. I mean, that's what I do this for is to entertain people. But, you know, there are also social messages within it. And it ended up being very prescient considering what's going on with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and policing, because I write about my character, Jeffrey Tolliver who is from my Grant County series. And this is a mild spoiler, but he died several years ago. And Sarah, his wife has moved on and she's dating a guy named Will Trent. Um, but Jeffrey in the Grant County series was always a good guy. And, and, you know, I think he is a really good guy, but we give police officers a lot of power and we give them a lot of trust. And Jeffrey certainly benefited from that. But I wanted to ask the question, well, what if he was wrong about something? Mm. What if he roughed up this suspect or he violated this person's rights or broke the law or bent the law? And, you know, all along we've thought, okay, well, he's doing the wrong thing for the right reason and the bad guy is punished. Well, what if it's not really the bad guy? What if he gets the wrong person? And that was the question that I wanted to explore in this novel is, you know, what if, what happens when police officers who you trust and who only have the best intentions are wrong? Because there's a, a certain um, telescoping that happens in a lot of investigations, especially on small police forces where everybody knows everybody, everybody gives everybody the benefit of the doubt. And that's what I wanted to talk about with this book is, you know, hey, this happens and what can we do about it? And how much was it influenced by real life events, Karen? Was there, and, and generally, do you kind of keep an eye on cases and, and look for inspiration in the newspaper? I do. And, you know, actually, so when I write about crime, I don't make things up. I can't come up with anything as horrific as a serial killer or a murderer. Or, you know, fortunately, I don't have that capacity. Um, but I do pick up different clues and details 
from autopsy reports, newspaper magazines. And the, the, one of the MOs for this particular killer in this book came from uh, an Australian serial killer who was using this method to uh, uh, on his victims. I'm trying not to give too much away. Yeah. And that's something that always stuck with me because it seemed particularly horrifying. And, you know, it's it, the thing about a certain type of serial killer is you really have to hate women to do this sort of thing. And I wanted to create a bad person in this book where you understood how not just that hatred started, but how it boiled over and how dangerous it was. Uh, and, you know, that was something I thought about as I was writing because I'd done a lot of reading about the incel movement or the men's rights movement because God knows men need more rights than they have now. Um, and so I, I just thought, you know, this is a good opportunity to write about those things. Yeah. And in terms of misogyny and all of that and the incels, like what did you, it's, it must've been a fascinating, you know, horrific rabbit hole to go down. I haven't read that much about them. I kind of vaguely know what they're, what they think, but, um, what, what did you, what do you think about that whole movement, that incel movement? Well, I mean, it's just, uh, I, you know, I don't know that it's not so amplified by the internet. You know, a lot of these hate groups, it's okay to be a racist at home, but then you go online and you think, wow, I am not alone. There are millions of us. Why isn't the world different? You know, I mean, you can always find something on the internet that's going to amplify your darkest impulses. And with the incel movement, they really have taken advantage of these chat rooms and they develop their own language. And it's, it's always, I mean, it would be hilarious if it wasn't so one pathetic and two terrifying because of the violence, but they, they talk about women like they're stupid and horrible and all they care about is money and they're just reprehensible and they should be chained up in my basement and used for sex. And then in the next line, they say, I don't know why no one wants to date me. <laughs> they, and, and, you know, it's kind of funny because it, it's like uh, if, if George Clooney came on to a woman and she said, now nah, I'm not interested. George Clooney would say, what's her problem? If a woman, any woman, try ask George Clooney out and he said, uh, no, I'm not interested. Then the woman would say, oh my God, something's wrong with me. Mm. You know, we always blame ourselves. Well, you know, primarily we'd never ask George Clooney out, you know, cause we would just assume he wouldn't be interested in someone like us. Right. But it, it's this self-confidence laced with insecurity. I mean, God grant me the, the confidence of a mediocre white man. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, thank you for that insight I don't need to go down an incel rabbit hole now I know it all thanks very much um, your standalone book Pieces of Her is being adapted for Netflix so was that interrupted by the whole pandemic absolutely it was three days away from uh, principal oh, no. yeah I'm very disappointing but they're ready to go um, it gave the writers more time to look at the scripts which is great you know because mm. writers always want more time um, and, you know, Tony Collette is still signed on and Bella Heathcote. So yeah, it's really, um, I'm really looking forward to it, but they have to figure out how to safely go back to work. Um, cause being on a film set is very, you're very close quarters. Do you have a producer role at all? Like, did you get to kind of say who plays who or have anything to do with any of that? 
Well, so the answer to that is yes and no. I do have a producer role, uh, but I uh, am one person and I can get overruled by the other producers. You know, but honestly, I've been very pleased with the process. Years ago, someone told me that uh, selling your, one of your books to film was tantamount to going to the dentist and having all your teeth pulled while I put money in your pocket. <laughs> um, but, you know, I love film. I love television. Um, I think that it's very difficult to adapt books. I mean, you look at um, normal people. I mean, uh, Sally Rooney worked on that, but of course they had to make changes because it's some stuff that works on the page doesn't work uh, necessarily in film. So they have made changes to it, but I've totally understood those changes. And, you know, honestly, I sold them the option. So I'd be kind of a, a jerk to say, okay, well, you know, you're doing it wrong. And, and it's flattering because this thing that I worked on in my pajamas with my <laughs> laptop all by myself years ago is like employing all these people. And, you know, people are talking about characters and things like that in such a micro way. And it's just, it's been a wonderful experience. And listen, you mentioned Sally Rooney there. Are you a fan of her work? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I really enjoyed the the show, even though I kind of felt like a pedophile because they're so young. <laughs> It's just sex all the time. And then emotions. Well, it's sex, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I was, I was felt better when, uh, they were supposed to be college kids. Uh, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, it was one of the things I watched on my iPad. Great. Um, listen, most apparently you've said this anyway, I don't know the statistics on it, but most people who read crime are women. Is that right? Yeah. Well, most people who buy fiction are women, 80 something percent. Yeah. So therefore, yeah, crime. Why do you think, because I think there's been a rise in it and we've had, we've seen like more Irish women writing crime as well and more going to the more gory side. Why do you think people are interested in it? Like from your experience talking to readers, is it the escapism? Is that what people kind of like about it? Well, I think so. But I think primarily they liked the same thing that my grandmother liked, which is at the end of the story, there was a resolution. And generally, I mean, you wouldn't have a crime novel if we didn't find out at the end who the bad person was. And they were caught and they were punished. And that doesn't necessarily happen in real life, especially for women, especially when you're talking about sexual assault. Uh, you know, it, it's a really tricky thing to prosecute. And uh, a lot of women who go through the process say it's like a second assault because it's so awful. Uh, and so in, in crime novels, you get that that clean resolution. And I, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I love crime fiction is you just know that the bad person's going to be punished. And, you know, another part of it is I think that we read these novels women read these novels and have read them for years. And, you know, men have, for the most part, given the voice to victims. And they have predominantly talked about these crimes through a male lens. So, you know, if they have a character who's sexually assaulted, then the woman in the next book is, you know, she's doing one of two things. She's either catatonic and she's an angel put on a pedestal, or she, for some reason, buys leather pants and motor a motorcycle and drinks everybody under the table. And both of these women are healed by the hero making love to her. Yeah. And that is not the experience. <laughs> you know, every 
every woman who's been through this will tell you that healing is something that you have to come to on your own. Another person can't give this to you. And so I wanted to write about that. And I think a lot of, a lot more women, especially now, you know, when I started out, it was me, Patsy Cornwell, Kathy Reichs, Mo Hader. And we were the ones who were called masculine writers or meaty or muscular writers because they just, they just, what are these gals doing? They're writing like men. How do we describe them? And what's the adjective? It can't just be writer. Uh, so, you know, now it's, it seems like women are more open to talking about that, exploring it. And I think it's fantastic. You know, you look at someone like Gillian Flynn, just taking an unflinching look at violence and not just that, but the psychology of violence and how terrifically horrible women can be to each other. And, you know, that kind of novel is not something that would have ever sold when I first started out. Yeah. So we're in different times, which is great. And it's that idea of what is a woman is changed as well. You know, we're not in our boxes as much as we used to be. We can be lots of different things and, and, and do lots of different stuff. Talk to me about your cats because you are a cat person. How many have you got at the moment? Um, well, I used to say two and a half because this one cat just showed up and he was like, I expect dinner at four every day. Um, but now he's an inside cat. So I have to legitimately say three. And it actually reminds me of growing up with my sisters because every single cat wants to be a single cat, uh, household. Right. Uh, so <laughs> the, none of them like each other. They all have their own territories. I'm frequently awakened uh, early in the morning when they're trying to uh, do a sharks and a jets type of um, choreography. So that's just been really pleasant for me. Yeah, I'd say it sounds wonderful. <laughs> what, what are their names? Uh, Maggie and Grace and Dexter. And Dexter's the, out, the one who uh, showed up. And uh, we called him Dexter because we didn't see him, but we kept finding bodies. Uh, and the front yard we called the killing fields because we just see like, you know, a rabbit ear or the head of a cardinal. And then he started bringing this to the front door. Uh, and I, you know, I think cats are like, wow, you are really bad at hunting here. Let me give you something so you don't starve. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, eventually we, we brought him inside. It took about six months to just get to the point where he would let me touch him. Wow. And I would go out at the same time every day with food and feed him and he would keep his distance. And, you know, it took, it took a while. It took six months of me going out every day at the same time, playing with him, trying to engage him. Uh, and now he's in my house and he controls everything. Excellent. Good for Dexter. And your Instagram feed is mostly cats. Is that fair to say? Um, yes, but I would also argue that the internet was created for cat videos and photos. So I'm in keeping with that spirit. Well, listen, I want to ask you more about your lockdown life because I know you have this cabin where you write. Did you lock down there or in your main home? Well, I stayed in Atlanta because uh, rural hospitals are really awful. Um, when I was up at the cabin once, I was on a horse. Long story, but I, I've been thrown from horses three times. Okay. Uh, and they say get back up on the horse, but you shouldn't. It really pisses off the horse. Um, and so I dislocated, uh, my shoulder, uh, and I had to go to the hospital up in Blue Ridge and, uh, they said, oh, too bad you you didn't do this on a Tuesday. That's when the MRI truck comes. Uh, so <laughs> we, I thought it was better to stay 
here in Atlanta where we've got six world-class hospitals. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, we'll see if that's a good idea, but I, I worry about my dad cause he's up there. And I said to him, if you get, if you even cough, you need to come down here because uh, if you're up there, you're in trouble. And how is your dad? He's great. You know, he's, um, he has a coin laundry and uh, a commercial laundry and uh, it's been going like gangbusters and he promises me that he's wearing his mask, uh, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good thing because he keeps it below his nose. Uh, But, you know, (laughs) he, he, he entertains me in believing that this coronavirus is a real thing. Uh, We'll see how long that lasts. Right. And listen, what about um, what's next for you, Karen? Obviously, it's very exciting about pieces of her for Netflix. That We look forward to that. Your 21st book, is it already cooked or cooking or what are you thinking? It's it's simmering. Okay. You know, part of the problem is I write very realistic of the moment books and we have this pandemic going on. And so I have to anticipate what our lives are going to look like summer of next year when this book comes out. It's a standalone. The one after that we'll have uh, Will and Sarah. But are we going to have tests that we give ourselves in the morning to see if we're contagious? Are we going to, are are people actually going to honor that and stay at home if they test positive? I mean, it's a really interesting thing to think about. You know, what about if people have already had it? Are they going to be traveling more freely. I was actually talking to Veronica Roth about this. She wrote Divergent. I was like, how did you know? And she said, I warned everybody. Uh, (laughs) But are we going to have these uh, passports, the health passports they're talking about? So, I mean, it's just, it's really interesting just looking at the the topic of this standalone. The main character is a lawyer and our prison system is rife with infection right now. And we treat them very poorly anyway. Medical health, I write about this in The Last Widow. Medical health care is almost unheard of in prisons. And so we're basically incubating these COVID hotspots within these small towns because mm-hmm. most prisons are in small towns. So, you know, that's something I have to think about as I'm writing. Karen, do you mind writing about the pandemic? Because I have to say, I was thinking about writers generally. I mean, I, for you who writes very topical books, you kind of have to do it. But I'm sure there's lots of writers who are just going to avoid it for a good while. Or can you as a writer? Is the pandemic something that has to end up in books? No, I think, you you know, especially with the writers, it's your book. So you can do anything you want to. And I do have, I've talked to friends about this and some of them are choosing to write a, a pre-COVID uh, story. And some of them had already been in the middle of writing. So it was pretty much set. I was talking to Mike Connolly last month and he has a, a Lincoln lawyer book that he's doing. And uh, he pushed back his deadline because he wanted to incorporate the pandemic into it. So I guess my plan is to read what Mike wrote and then copy him. Well, listen, before you go, one thing I want to ask you is you're hilarious and you're known for your hilarity and you've shown us here on this conversation. What, do people find it funny that you can be so funny and yet uh, so dark as well at the same time? Or are those two things just like two sides of the same coin? I think it is two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, we get out, us crime writers get out all our angst and anger and fears and all that in our writing. And most crime writers I know, like Lee Child is one of the most beautiful men I've ever met. You know, he's just such a sweet guy. Jeffrey Deaver, uh, 
Mike Connolly, Lisa Gardner, we're all pretty laid back. It's the romance writers you have to watch out for. Those bitches will cut you. <laughs> and on that note, Karen Slaughter, uh, never was a woman more aptly named. Those bitches will cut you. That's the best. <laughs> Thank you very much and the best of luck with all your writing and congratulations on reaching the big 2-0. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks to our guest, Karen Slaughter. If you want to get in touch, we're on FB, Twitter and Instagram at IT Women's Podcast and we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.